This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. It's such a high price you're paying at this age, working 16, 15 hours a day. I said, I thought about all of that when I really thought carefully about the risk, financial, emotional, physical. I'm standing 15 hours a day on my legs and cooking and chopping. Yeah, those are all heavy costs. But the heavier cost for me would have been carrying the burden of not not doing it. I think everyone should weigh out this. Can I live with this fire burning inside me and let it burn to burn me or get it out? And how bad can it be? At most, I land with my face. This might sound like a movie pitch. A young woman leaves Iran after a revolution, comes to America to start a new life, becomes a mother who was always cooking, and more than 35 years later, with no professional training and against all odds, opens an acclaimed restaurant in New York at age 59, becoming the driver of a trendy new cuisine in Manhattan. For now, it's not a movie. It's the life of Nassim Akalani, founder of the restaurant Sofra. Coming up, you'll hear how from the minute it opened, her restaurant has been pretty much impossible to get into. How its popularity is as much a product of her particular brand of hospitality as of the delicious food. The importance placed on entertaining guests in Iran. How Nassim almost didn't make it through to the restaurant's opening day how her strong vision of every aspect of the restaurant and why it makes the guests feel transported, how her deep spirituality has permeated her business, the way a touching poem from her father has meant everything, and the legacy of tiny meatballs. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Nassim, I am fascinated by you and your journey. Truly, I think your story is so unusual, and it's an unusual story for a woman a woman from Iran, and a woman in New York City. You are the owner of one of the most exciting new restaurants that has opened in New York uh, this past year. I've been many times. Um, But I would love for you to just share with us how you started. And I know this is kind of a big question, but um, what was the moment that you even thought you might like to have a restaurant? (laughs) Well, first of all, I'm really honored by all these wonderful things you said. (laughs) Part of me is just like I still have to slap myself and just like this is not a dream, it's reality, all of it, the whole thing. From the opening of the Sofre the first day when I had no clue what was ahead of me or what I was going to do, to be here with media recognition, with returning guests, with empty plates, with (laughs) hugs, with warmth that I see every day. So all of it, I'm just, I'm still like in awe. But uh, how did I get here? Yeah, I don't, it's really a long question. But as far as Sofra goes, I think restaurant and just cooking has always been in my kind of almost DNA. I remember myself as a young kid always being distracted by smell of food mm. very, very early on, like, or, or bad smell of food, like really would turn my stomach. And <laughs> my mother would say, like, I get really like bad behavior or like loud scream, like this smells horrible or <laughs> right in front of like people's homes or like, this is amazing. Like what is happening? To the point that I actually started using my hands and cook next to my mother around age 10, 11, and then doing all these summer projects with her and my aunt and relatives, and then going to college and like keep cooking in the midst of like the chaos outside because of revolution and all the turmoil in Iran. So just 
just cooking, cooking. And then I, I came here as a young, alone, scared student mm. and then calmed myself down again with basically having no equipment, but just a little pot, just make myself a big pot of lentil rice. And, <laughs> and that was... That was the comfort, that was home. And I never thought that would happen in a restaurant. I had different careers, I had different education even. Um, but food was such a big part of my life that as I threw these big parties uh, for friends, and I just liked to do that. I liked big, I liked action, I liked party, I liked cooking for the party, lots of preparing, and then watching it being used in a good way, like creating an environment that started with my food. And uh, whether it be a charitable event or a friend's wedding or anything, the question was always, who cooked the food? Like, And people would come like, you should open a restaurant. And my, <laughs> and my husband was saying, bad advice. Do not tell people who cook well, open a restaurant. That's bad advice. He, we heard that. We heard this for many, many years. But, but meanwhile, uh, it happened. It happened around the time that my twins were maybe 10, 11, I realized how much like invested I was in their lives and I loved it. But at the same time, I realized the the, the possibility of not the vacuum, like they're going to leave soon. Like before yes. I know it in five, six years, they will be out the door. And then, then what? Who am I going to cook? There won't be any soccer team or any school event or any <laughs> charitable event. And then I, I have to cook. I have to cook for large crowds and I have to like, and yeah, why not open a restaurant? Well, you know, it was a, a big question, and I think we already heard, like, sort of the span of your life in a very, very short time. So I'm going to unpack a little bit and and actually, and thank you so much, but go back to the beginning of your mother's house in Iran. And um, I've never heard anyone really talk about this, but your sensitivity or your acute sensitivity to smell when you were young, and I think this really was no accident that you wound up becoming a, a, a chef or, you know, a home cook. Again, owning a restaurant is something else altogether Absolutely. that we will talk about. Um, because in our office, you know, we're international restaurant consultants. And when someone calls to say the, they want to open a restaurant, we always say lie down until the urge passes. Right? <laughs> this is a very uh, tricky, tricky industry, but also yeah, very, yeah, uh, very generous, wonderful one. But uh, 80% of taste is smell. And I do think that there are people who really have a very heightened acuity about uh, the sense of, of smell. And you, most people think about wonderful smells, but of course, they can be very, you know, noxious smells as well. But you are, you are open to both. Um, I just am so fascinated about the food of Iran and about other cultures. Can you possibly just explain if you can go back to your childhood kitchen when you were 10 or 11 uh, or younger, um, what a typical day would be like of, of eating, really starting from morning breakfast. Like what is a typical Iranian breakfast and lunch and do you snack? And yeah, just. Yeah, a very typical bre breakfast starts kind of early, 7, 8 a.m. Um, with um, just fresh baked bread, people uh, still, my dad, he's 90, he still walks every day to the few bakeries around, that's his morning exercise and make sure that there's always a fresh bread at home. So it's always a fresh bread. There are always um, beautiful variations of feta cheese. And depending on the season, if it's summer, like lots of beautiful tomatoes and cucumber. Mm. And if it's winter, walnuts, there is always it's a multiple variation of like there are savory things on the table and there are also sweet things. Uh, the savories are feta, sometimes eggs if it's holiday, but uh, there's always like a marmalade of some kind, uh, at least in our house, a few kinds. My mother loves her marmalades are divine. So they're like, she puts all her spreads of marmalade on a table. Some of them we won't even use, but they are there and they are eye pleasing and mm. it's just nice. And then there's always a butter or a cream that I people typically start the savory breakfast and then they end it with a little sweet note with butter and marmalade. Mm. Um, there are also this sweet, semi-sweet bread. They call it shirmal, like milk bread. Those are occasional treats. When when we visit home, my dad treat me at least once <laughs> or twice a week with this sweet 
they're not sweet, but they're kind of bread with a hint of sweetness, mm-hmm. and they're soft and fluffy. Like a brioche? Almost style? like a brioche, mm-hmm. and I intend to serve it at Sofra at some point. And uh, yeah, then with the cream and honey or fresh marmalade, this is mm. a typical breakfast. Then the mo- then in Iran, we eat a lot. We visit a lot. <laughs> we really eat a lot, but in segments, like if we, in the middle of the day, a visitor comes and or visit someone, the, the, immediately you sit down, tea comes, always tea, always tea. Tea comes with the uh, fruits in the middle of the day. And then it's lunch and lunch, always the biggest meal, mm-hmm. uh, rice, stews, uh, heavy stuff, like uh, serious, <laughs> like heavy duty meal. And then, of course, la- tea after lunch, you know, how could you? And people, <laughs> when they could, they, there was a siesta after the lunch, mm-hmm. always. Uh, still is in the smaller cities, but in large cities, I don't think people can do that anymore. And then in the afternoon, again, fruits and tea, and <laughs> we keep eating. And dinner, um, when when I was growing up, was basically never cooked meal or very light cooked meal. My mother would prepare simple frittata or something or a salad or even feta. Um, when we were young, I asked her, we were asking her, so what's for dinner? She was saying feta and what she meant, feta and pick your fruits, grape watermelon, melon, mm. cucumber, mm. and bread. That's the dinner because we already ate like a, a big lunch, a big heavy lunch with meat and all that. And um, I, it's still like this in traditional homes, but it has changed a lot. The Iranians diet has changed like every, every, every other industrial city people work. So sometimes they don't have big, big, lunches and they come home for dinner. Um, in my family, we still, I'm from Esfahan, we still eat the same way. You're from a town by the name of Esfahan, Esfahan. which is a desert city in the center of, and a very beautiful city in the center mm. of Iran. I mean, you're really making me swoon with all of this, but I'm asking for a reason. Yes, I'm interested in different cultures, but I am really interested in your restaurant. <laughs> so your restaurant is called Sofra, Mm-hmm. Or Sofre, S O F R E H, and uh, tell tell us what that stands for, what it actually means. Sofre literally means a piece of cloth that we spread on a table and we eat on it. That is a literal, a tablecloth, a tablecloth. Ah. But usually, it's a special tablecloth that when when it's about the meal time, it comes out of a cupboard and spread. It's just not there all the time. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be clean. It's supposed to be nice. And uh, when there are guests, we put the very fancy ones. Yeah. <laughs> but but that is the literal meaning of it. But it's sofre is so much more sofre. Um, we have wedding sofre, special cloth for weddings, and we also have. Uh, all kinds of traditional sofre for religious ceremonies and mm. offerings. And there is also sofre that um, for, for Nuruz, for Persian New Year, there is a very beautiful traditional spread that is a special cloth and we put all kinds of traditional uh, New Year. So that those are the meanings, different meanings of sofre. To me, the way it symbolizes, it symbolizes f- gathering, when you have sofre, you have people. When you spread sofre of any kind, whether religious or wedding or even uh, memorial services or anything, you have people. And when you have people, you have food. When you have food, you have warmth and community. So for me, this is just like, yes, that's sofre. That's food, community, gathering, people. <laughs> and that was the intention of the restaurant. Absolutely. And boy, did you deliver. So how would you describe Sofra to people who haven't yet been, just in terms of the ambiance, what it looks like, what you um, hope to accomplish there? The reason I asked you about the food of your childhood was how much of that is actually represented in the contemporary, in a contemporary Persian restaurant in Brooklyn, New York. Yes. So, yes. so how do you describe it? I, I would say describe, I, many people know me personally, but for those who don't know me, I would say I wanted Sofre not to look like a typical restaurant, especially in New York. I have nothing against typical restaurants in New York. <laughs> I hope I am not crucified for saying this, but there is a there is a tendency being like hip and loud and dark and cool. I wanted I wanted people walk in and they think they are somewhere else, maybe on a vacation or someone that they didn't know and they are immediately they want to have a new experience. And and I tried to create it 
this with the help of uh, our creative director, Rogia, how can we give this sense, like a space that people walk in and say, wow, it's different. And I think we accomplished that. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> it, it feels like you're on a vacation somewhere. And then the open kitchen brings the smell. I'm very very keen on a smell. Yes. Um, any any restaurant I eat or decide not to eat, I just take a deep sniff. <laughs> if it's pleasing, I stay. If not, I'll just walk away, regardless I have a reservation or what. So, if, or, or if there is no smell, I, I'm worried. What kind of a restaurant is that? <laughs> no smell at all. There's no smell, and I'm very sensitive. I smell everything. Yeah. So we decided to have the open kitchen so people smell our food off food smells divinely. So they walk in, their space is inviting, their smell is inviting and enticing, not just inviting. They just want to like, what is it? What is cooking? And then the buzz, the buzz, this should be buzz. People are out. So they don't want to enter a library. They want to be in a restaurant, <laughs> but at the same time, not so loud that you just like, whoa, you hit the wall of noise. So yeah, that's what I wanted Sofra to be. And in terms of what it means to me, it uh, is extension of my home and parties in New York. I My home is similar. It looks a lot like Sofra. It's just much smaller, but visually it's very much. And the food, people walk in my open, is ki- my kitchen is open. But then all of it goes back to my f- my father and mother's home. They cook, the, they invite people a lot. My mother cooked all the time. We had parties all the time. And this anticipation of cooking, cleaning, preparing, people come and people come and we have a blast. And to me, all of it goes back to this amazing childhood memories of people coming and going and, you know, family and... And, and you food. wanted to create it, recreate it. Yes, recreated, but in a in a New York setting. Of course, it's it's it was a challenge. It's not home anymore. How do I turn this? How do I interpret all that to a restaurant setting, uh, both in terms of you know prices and plates and service? And um, we are still learning as a team how to do it. But one way I found it is just if I'm there and I'm introducing the Persian hospitality the way I know by greeting people. So I'm not just a host. Host is someone who says, hello, welcome. You know, <laughs> do you have a reservation? I'm not that. I'm, I'm just, I just go to the table and I want to share my food with them. I want to make sure they're comfortable. Yes. Well, I think it's really important um, <clears throat> to point out Two things, and this is what makes your story so fascinating. Number one is that you had never really worked in a restaurant uh, in your life. You were more of a home cook and entertainer, and you would do big parties and be this extraordinary um, host. But at Sofra, you are in the kitchen every single day uh, during the day. I know at night you have uh, two chefs who kind of do service, but it's really important for people to understand this in a, in a way is still home cooking because you are going there. You are making the yogurt. You are putting up all the preserves. You are making the stews and the sauces. So you are there every day. Tell me just a little bit about the a typical day in your life in the, in the kitchen. Yeah, a typical day. I start at nine. Um, I quickly get in before everyone comes, sometimes before, depending on the task of the day. And a little five minutes by myself. Then the prep team comes. They come. We have a little little light candle ceremony, sit down five, ten minutes. And <laughs> then lovely. we have breakfast. And then we get to work. Uh, by the time the, the two chefs come, which is around 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock, we... We plan, we discuss a little bit about future um, dish changes. We always discuss and uh, Ali and I really always work collaboratively on, on making new dishes. So that's the time we do. We think about because we're also changing the, some of the items in the menu. But by the time they come, I try to get all the sauces in place. They are a slow cooking process. So I, I don't want them to come and things are not finished. I have to have all the sauces finished so they can be cooled down and they can be ready for the service. Right, because um, Persian food is not a la minute cooking. Exactly. This is deep, complex, yeah. slow cooking. long braised and yeah. stews and a lot of care. A lot of time goes into yeah, this food. Yeah, but the, good, the, the beauty, or, or maybe lucky enough that I have a very solid prep team that when I come at nine, 
everything is chopped and, uh, <laughs> and everything's prepped. So creating big pots of multiple four or five dishes, really, it's an, in an hour, I have every dish going and the rest is tending to them and making sure and then layering the dishes as we go. But I do three or four dishes together at the same time. So by the time the chefs come, one or two, the dishes have simmered four or five hours. They're ready to cool down. And we all taste it, we adjust the seasoning, and they're ready to be cooled and sent for the service. Wonderful. Yeah. And you are serving hundreds of meals now. Yes, at, we are. At, dinner, yeah. at, a, at a fairly small restaurant, but uh, I think you have the timing really you know, well done now. There's a rhythm and people are coming and going, and there is this buzz that you were so uh, interested in creating. Up next, you'll hear how Nassim opened her first restaurant at the age of 59. What an inspiration. And some more specifics about what Persian food is really all about. Here's a cooking tip to share. It usually takes lots of time to make a sauce. But here's one of my favorites, and it's terrific to pour over fish, grilled chicken, over steamed vegetables, or roasted vegetables. It's a foaming chive butter sauce and made from only four ingredients, and one of them is water. All you do is take a small saucepan and melt four tablespoons of unsalted butter, add two teaspoons of finely minced fresh chives, one clove of garlic, finely chopped, and three tablespoons of water. Bring to a boil and whisk rapidly with the wire whisk. That's it. From my kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Nassim, in so many ways, you are a one-woman kitchen. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like at the age of 59 to open up your first restaurant? How scary. Should I tell you about the nervous breakdown for 12 hours? <laughs> Start by saying you mean every day or just no, once? No, no, <laughs> I Just prior to opening, I really literally had a full-on nervous breakdown. I do not recall where I was. I, I woke up in a chair, but it just, I lost it. And uh, the only thing I remember, I we were going to open a few days later. I only had one chef. I had the young sous chef. And uh, my husband was away preparing, coming back to be there for the first night of family and friends opening. I sent an email to him, to my kids, to the chef, to the sous chef, to the young chef. And I said, we are not opening. Mm. Uh, we are, I am in no position to open. And then next I closed the email and I think I just passed out for oh, about dear. 12, 14 <laughs> hours. And I was frozen in, in my chair and... Um, we had no real prep cook. We mm. had a few people, but I didn't like them. They were not a good match for us. We had kind of a dishwasher. We were, we were a mess. <laughs> and then when I woke up um, hours later, uh, I opened my computer and uh, I saw that there is an email from a person I never knew or, or met saying that, you know, he's happy to come and uh, help us sort through our... He's a chef. He's a seasoned chef. Um, he's Persian. He worked in the industry for many, many years, but he basically wants to get back to his roots and discover. And I don't have to pay him ticket or his hotel. He just has a week off. <laughs> and he wants to meet me and then see where we go. I was just like... That, was that the same day as the nervous breakdown? You got Absolutely. this email that same day. Of so the this was breakdown. like you know a kismet. This I know, was really meant like, to be. This is very unusual. And I said, you know, I have nothing to lose. I am going to meet a young man, and uh, <laughs> at least I hear some professional. Maybe he can help me sort through this mess I put myself into. <laughs> and he ended up to be the backbone of Sofre. And yeah, Ali is still with me, and I don't know where. I would be without all my supports, starting with my husband, with my best friend Minu, Orogia, before opening Sofre. Of course. And then as soon as Sofre was about to open with this young uh, sous chef I had, but he was also young, two years. He was just out of culinary school. He and I were going to open a restaurant. 
him with two years of culinary school experience and me with zero experience, what the <laughs> hell we were thinking. And then Ali came on board and he just brought a professionalism and sense of a restaurant setting that I didn't have. And yeah, God sent gift. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. <laughs> well, again, it's such an unusual story. But you have also, I've also heard you say that um, in some ways you were preparing for seven years to open this restaurant. Yes. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, not just only seven years, for literally 20 plus years. Mm. Every time I cooked a meal through a party, one time I fed... Uh, I organize uh, an event for 400 people for Ooh. Children Film Festival all by myself. In my mind, I was always preparing for a restaurant. I was too scared to admit it when I was young. Uh, just people would make fun of me. Even, even I was making fun of myself. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? But um, I was preparing by watching, by creating a certain menu. I always had a menu in mind, a, a, a routine, like what people should be eating as a small bites and then move to the main and then how they should end their meal. The sa- it was always the same in my house. And then for events, I followed the same format. And in my mind, restaurant goes like that too. And they all should be harmonious and each step should complement the next. Like appetizers should complement, they should be a backbone of getting people ready for main and yes. main should end with a beautiful sweet note, but not too much, not very, f- in my mind. So... In some of the events, I uh, watched people. I intently watched, went around and made a note of what food was consumed first, how it was used, which wasn't, what was worked, what mm-hmm. didn't. Mm-hmm. So by, when I started finally, when we finally, I convinced my husband, we are going for a restaurant, all that experience became a concrete direction. I had, I would throw testing parties at my home, I wouldn't tell my friends that they are being guinea pigs, but they were. <laughs> and, and they were not just friends, you know, they were, I was doing events without telling people what I was doing. And I was making notes and really mapping out. So when people ask me, um, do you have, everybody would ask, you know, they knew this restaurant is going to open. So what's your menu? I have a menu. Where is it? It's in my head. I know exactly what I was going to do. That's where it starts, right? Yeah. When we create a dish or a menu, it's in our head first. Exactly. And and still, even I know exactly what next summer I'm going to serve or the following winter I'm going to do. I have mapped out, I had seven years, remember, to, to, (laughs) to map out the dishes I like to introduce first and then how I move my guests to a little more uh, complex dishes. Mm. So I started friendly and very warm, heartwarming, like what they call it, cloud pleaser. And, and cloud slow, pleasers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm slowly moving to really nice, solid, traditional dishes that well, are backbone of Nassim, our culture. I would love a few specifics. Uh, some things on your menu now that with all of the research that you did before you opened, what are you observing now? What are, what are your customers loving the most? Because I know you change your menu quite often, but what are some of the crowd pleasers that you now could never take off the menu because you'd become famous for them. Lamb shank. Lamb shank. Yes. And the meatball, the tiny meatballs. And as much as uh, people doubted me that the homemade yogurt, I'm such a fan of homemade yogurt that people were like, uh, American audience are just beginning to discover yogurt and my and your yogurts are a little sour. They are uh, they may not like it. I knew they are going to like it. Who <laughs> now that I am more convinced, I can't keep up with the demand of the yogurt. I mean, if I open a yogurt shop tomorrow, <laughs> I would be probably outnumbered, Chobani. No, I'm kidding. But but no. <laughs> but your yogurt really is a, a Persian yogurt in general is it's, it's is, more sour. It's, it's more, much sour more sour because it's more complementing the dish. Mm-hmm. It we cook with sour yogurt. We uh, bake with yogurt. With uh, we also eat yogurt with our food. So it has a hint of. We also have sweet yogurt for different purposes. Not sweet, naturally sweet. We never add sugar to any yogurt. So some of the dishes, yeah, lamb chank or lamb chank or the chicken dish, the number one, I never, I knew chicken, plum sauce would be very popular, but now it's a dilemma. I want to do some other chicken dish and is a, is a problem. <laughs> Sorry, you can't. <laughs> I, I can't. And 
And but, uh, but is chicken with, is this barberries? Or yes, this, with is the it, barberries. Uh, now, I don't know if everyone knows. In fact, I'm not sure I knew what barberries were either. It's it's a berry. Yeah, but it's a sour berry. Is they it? are very sour, very tiny. Tiny. And they are a cross between close to lingonberry that I saw in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And, but lingonberries are more juicy. These are more dry. Maybe it's the climate because it's desert. Um they also remind me when they dried up to the piece of dried cranberry, unsweetened cranberry. Oh, mm-hmm. So they're all like a family. But the, we use barberries as a garnish. We also use it as a stuffing, just like you use cranberry for right, any of this. Right. But cranberries, they take over the dish because they're so big and juicy <laughs> yes. and sour. <laughs> barberries are very delicate. and mm. uh, So they don't take over, but they just add it. And also they're like jewel to me. They're like beautiful. They really add so much visually. Well, you know, since it's a cuisine that's so fascinating to me, what are some of the other ingredients that are essential to the Persian kitchen? Are there herbs? Are there spices? Is there a spice mixture? Um I don't know, does the Persian kitchen use a lot of dill or cilantro? Mm-hmm. Or I think once you let me taste uh, black garlic and it was soaked for five years, you told me, yeah. in some kind of a vinegar. So, again, you know, in America, we have, um, we're very lucky. We have lots of different cuisines. But I believe that, and you're a big part of it. Um, that Persian cuisine is now something that we're, it's going to be a trend. It's something that we're going to know much more about. Um, so w- what would be some of the staples of the Persian kitchen? Um, saffron. Saffron. Saffron, rose water, mm. nuts, beautiful, just beautiful rice. As much as people over the course of many years in, in the country, rice got a little bit beating down with people being obsessed with pasta and all that. So rice uh, took a back door and part of it is becoming like rice is so simple that it's been treated simply, and uh, which is fine, but uh, a beautiful, to me, a beautifully done, uh, well done rice. It's, it's a meal by itself. To me, it's just with a hint of butter and a little bit of sumac and a spoon of yogurt, you really have a luxurious, satisfying meal that is just so elegant and comforting. But all the elements should be right. So in, in we do have a spice mixtures. If you go to bazaars of Esfahan or Tehran, you find these uh, spice shops that mm-hmm. is covered. It's almost like Morocco with, with all the spices uh, inviting you in. And there are spice mixtures for rice, for a stew, for this, for ah. pickles. But I make my own mixes and uh, my mixes are simple. I am always pro-simplicity. Um, I think as much as I like a spice mixtures, but when they do mix, to me, everything gets mixed up and I like things to be differentiated for what they are. So I use a lot of, and in Farsi, in Persian cooking, turmeric is essential. We use, we start turmeric. Mm -hmm. We start with lots and lots of onion. And then the next thing is we uh, toast our turmeric. And then we start layering everything else. As far as the herbs, usage of herbs here, they call it herbs like cilantro, parsley, scallion. Uh, All of these are considered herbs. The way we cook and the way we use, they are vegetable. They are the entire stew made of cilantro. So you think of herbs as vegetables. Vegetables. That's fascinating. It's, if, I, if you see a big pots of dishes I make, they are a whole pot with the size of like a small person can sit in it, full of a scallion, cilantro, parsley. <laughs> Did you just say a small person yes, can sit in yes, it? Yes, a small okay. person can, a small baby can sit in it, full of, uh, full of vegetables, which is, you know, lick, scallion, cilantro, parsley, spinach. That is the base of the dish. And you either add meat or a noodle or beans. Mm. That is complementing. So uh, Melissa Clark described this very, like, we, the way we use these vegetables. Vegetables. It's like Melissa crazy. Clark in the New York Times yes, and that yes, wonderful she, story she yes, did she, of you. She was shocked when I went to cook that fish sauce with her, how much uh, cilantro, parsley, scallion. And she, she was like, wow, okay, that that is a dish. That is a broth. That is a sauce. So this is so fascinating because, uh, you know, I, I feel that Persian food will become trendy because it's new and exciting. 
But even more so now that you're telling me this, because we have become so vegetable and plant forward in the way we want to eat and kind of clean, vibrant Mm -hmm. flavors. So this is really very exciting to hear. Thank you. Sure. Up next, you'll hear from Nassim about what it's like to be a woman who grew up in Iran and then came to America and how the perception of women may be different in two different countries. And also, we'll get a legacy recipe from Nassim. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Nassim, I'm so interested about the culture of women and food in Iran. Uh, I know what it is in America, but um, are women involved in food professionally in Iran or restaurants? Or are they writers about food? What is the the culture about women and food in in Iran? Okay. um, I wish I knew that answer very specifically because I've been away for a while. But uh, when you go to typical restaurants in Iran, it's still male-dominated environment. Um, most of the workers is pretty much, you see male everywhere. But all the cookbooks that I brought here, they are done by female. Yes. And every amazing cook I know, home cook, and they are doing incredible catering. Many are women. So many women run these beautiful classes. And I know recently I have heard of few uh, young entrepreneurs who do, they turn their homes to kind of pop-up shops wow. and they do exciting, amazing. I saw the photos, can't wait to try these young women's food in Iran. I, so it's a lot happening. And in Iran, there's a perception in the West about women from our region, particularly, or maybe Mideast in general, that women are home cooking this and that. That is a very wrong perception. And uh, I had this issue from the day I came to this country because I could sense the questions. So somebody was shocked that I even swam long distance, like, Shocking that we even swim because, (laughs) yeah, we do swim and we do have a team. Um, In Iran, uh, my mother worked, my grandmother worked, and and many women work. And the farms, the the factories, they're women. They may not be in a managerial position, and and that's part of a cultural dilemma. But in the last 40 years, 65% of the university entrants were female, to the point that the government had to enforce a quota against women because... Basically, they took over the jo- guys' jobs. And, and fascinating. It's really. fascinating. And I'm very proud of this uh, woman in Iran that no matter what they do or where they are, they are they're just pushing forward despite all the limitations they may have culturally or socially. And so. But you mentioned uh, an interesting word really to associate with women. You said that uh, Iranian women are very strong, kind of strong willed, right? And very professional. Um, As you say, they go to universities, but they also, they can uh, kind of almost have a dual life, right? Because they're also very home-minded and great entertainers. And um, so women really are doing it all there. Like here too. (laughs) I think many women here do the same. And, And I noticed there is really not a difference between people all over. And there are always variations of that. In Iran, it's just a little more emphasis is still on the home part, and especially my time now. It's yes, um, I'm sure changing. There was it's changing. It's changing everywhere. It's changing, um, but there is a more emphasis on entertaining and hospitality. Yes, even and that this notion of hospitality, we have a special word for mehman. Mehman means guest. That in in the guest is is an honor word. When you say you are my guest, mm-hmm. like you are on top of my head, literally you could do anything. Um, <laughs> in many... But now I got the secret of the success of your restaurant, Nassim. This is what you do. This is how you make everyone feel when they come in. They feel like your guests. They are guests. And in my father's home, the very first home I grew up, we had this in many old homes. There were a special room for guests. We would not. We were not entering that room. Had to be meticulous, always clean, beautifully done. 
uh, and it was for guests. They had a special, if they would sleep over, there were a special bed for guests. And if there was no food at home, we wouldn't eat, but we would pretend we have enough meal and the guests would eat. So there is oh, a steel that, yeah, there is a steel <laughs> <So> that <beautiful. laughs> emphasis on the guest part. So yeah, women are professional working jobs and but if they have guests, they rush home and they shed all the thing that they had to deal with during the day. They prepare. The guests are coming and they should be felt comfortable and welcomed. And that's what I try to do. No matter what my day is at Sofre, I'm coming up the steps of Sofre, going to the dining room. I shake my head. He said, guests are coming. Wow. Well, this spirit certainly is alive and well there. Um, just tell us a little bit, though, about some of the challenges and near disasters you had. And and I know your husband was very supportive and very involved and your children and Roji, your beautiful designer and, and the, the men, the two chefs working, you know, at service in the kitchen. But what was like... What were some of the really near near disasters you you had, or even a great funny moment? Uh, the the near, I think the biggest disasters and the challenges I faced was more me and my lack of confidence and my own fears. I had I had an army behind me, like all these people you mentioned. I also had my years of experience behind me. You know, when you become fifty nine, you have seen yourself down and you have seen yourself up, down again. Despite all of that, the self-doubt, the fear, the anxiety, the, the voices in my own head was my biggest uh, enemy. And I, I st- they still are. I still have to put my foot down and remind myself of my conviction, of my recipe, of my belief. And that is the everyday challenge. Um, yeah, I may not be called a professional quote-unquote chef. You are I have now. To, and I am not. <laughs> I still am not. And i kind of a badge of honor. I am a, a great cook who may not have a good and doesn't have a good knife skill. So what? I have amazing Ali who does like incredible, like he's, he has a speed of lightning he can cut. But but I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. And I have a map out map for me. And that is something I have to daily remind myself. But one thing maybe is a word of advice or to my daughter, maybe who am I to give advice to anybody else is the fear of the, they ask me, why did you do that? It's such a high price you're paying at this age, working 16, 15 hours a day. I said, I thought about all of that when I really thought carefully about the risk, financial, emotional, physical. I'm standing 15 hours a day on my legs and cooking and chopping. Yeah, those are all heavy costs. But the heavier cost for me would have been carrying the burden of not not doing it. I think everyone should weigh out this. Can I live with this fire burning inside me and let it burn to burn me or get it out? And how bad can it be? At most, I land with my face, shake it off and move on or let this fire to destroy me inside. Because for me, that was the issue. And I couldn't live with the latter. So I've decided to move forward. Wow. I'm speechless. This is so um, invaluable to so many things, whether you want to open a restaurant or not. Um, Those are extraordinary words of wisdom. Nassim, uh, do you think there's a spiritual component of food and entertaining and nourishment, nourishing others? Because I know you're kind of deeply spiritual, and even the fact that you do this candle lighting ceremony <laughs> before breakfast for your, you know, for your teams, really beautiful stuff. It is. I, I am a firm believer of, I'm a huge believer of uh, people who are in a service industry of any kind. They are, they are in a service. They are serving people, doctors, nurses, teachers, chefs, cooks. We are all serving others. If we serve without knowing that, without appreciating what we do, I think it becomes a chore and a job and it loses its meaning. But if we serve, whether we are a cook or a nurse, if we, are, we know we are serving. And if we put an intent and a good will of serving into that, I think it nourishes me at first, 
and then it gives that nourishment back to the next person. I really don't think uh, my dishes are anything superior than any other good cook in Iran. There are hundreds, thousands of them. In but you Iran. have to go to Iran, so thank yes. you for bringing it and, to and, us. No, and, and here too, here too, I have eaten fabulous food here in my friends' homes, but I am doing it with more intention of really I'm serving. I am giving part of my knowledge, my culture, my food through this. I am communicating. And I think that is important for me, that lighting ceremony, that candle for me to remind myself first, what is it I'm trying to do? I'm not just cooking. I am putting myself in a service business and with it nourishes nourishing myself first and then others as an extension. And I think that is very important that we as cooks or people in the industry remind ourselves because it's such a hard job and we need to remind ourselves what we are doing to get just kind of feedback and get on our feet every day to do that over and over again. Yes. And nourishing ourselves is such an essential part of this. Nasima, I was really struck the first time I walked into the restaurant. On the right-hand side on the wall, there's a scroll. It's, I think, white or brown paper, and it had some writing in Farsi in it. And I asked you what that was. I actually just thought it was a piece of artwork. And you told me that it was actually a poem that was written by your father, and he gave that to you to put up in the in the restaurant. Yeah. Uh, what What does it say? My dad was here last year when we thought we were going to open Sofre, not knowing that New York City would give us gas nine months later. So okay. That's a typical story. <laughs> typical. My, my, my parents were leaving, and they didn't see that Sofre to be open. And, but my father, and this, the scroll that you see, the notepad, was supposed to be the daily special. And we were preparing to install it. And as they were about to leave the next day, I came, and dad, my dad shocked me by writing a very simple poem. And I just, I was bawling as they were getting in a taxi to go. And uh, it just was amazing what my dad, I get very emotional, but he was able with few words to describe his his immense love for me. And uh, I think it's something that every child wants to hear that his father or mother say, job well done. And that's what he, he did with that poem. What It's just a lot of nice words about, like, he wishes me the best. But one thing he said, he my name is Nassim, and it means breeze. And uh, because of my personality and my temper, I'm like, you know, the joke is she's more like a thunder than, Nassim, than breeze. But my dad, <laughs> but my dad wrote in, in I'm, I'm butchering probably destroying the translation, but he just said, he said, you, I, I, he said you're like a gentle breeze that uh, wishes for rain, but you're also like a mountain in a time of a storm. And you are you, you dream big and fly like eagle. I ask God to protect you. But then the last word that stays with me every day, he says, in this passing through, in this passing of time, every time, don't forget to look at the mirror inside and walk slowly. And that is what I read to remind myself every day. And that's what I do when I walk into Sofre is in my right hand side, literally, I look at it and I say, merci, Baba. And that's how I start by there. Well, thank you so much, Nassim. That's so beautiful. So let's talk about your legacy recipe. Since you have a legacy poem, <laughs> from your father it's uh, yeah my i was thinking what can be my legacy recipe i i feel i have so much to give in terms of our food and our recipes to this to the, to new york and to to russo fred through hopefully maybe my book thousands and which one i really want to be remembered the most um is a little tiny meatballs that i always made for my kids when they were young uh, i have a picky daughter who would not eat meat and how i could feed some meat to her was just through this very tiny tiny meatball like in the size of a uh, like a, a little bigger cranberry like tiny meatballs and it takes hours to make them and they are soft and chewy and delicious and a little sour and she would eat meat like that. And then as they got older and their friends came, I couldn't make so tiny ones. So I made them a little bigger. So now they're the size of a walnut, but <laughs> because just to feed this, you know, soccer team or base basketball. 
every kid who has eaten this food, they love it. And um, it's potato, it's meatball with potato and carrots. And we want to fancy it up. In the spring, I put sour plum in it. Or a little later, I put sour grape in them. Um, and yeah, if I want to make it really fancy, I put saffron broth on top. So that is the recipe that I probably would like to remember. I ate it when I was young. My mother was making it. And my mother was making, still makes it for my daughter when she's here. And my daughter says that that grandma's be- version is nicer than you. And I'm like, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> and um, I, my daughter wants to learn it. And she said, I will not have a kid, but if I do, I will make it for her, for them. So that is the recipe I like to share. It's called Kufte Galgali, little tiny, let me call them little tiny meatball. And yeah, that's the dish. Thank you so much. You seem so... In closing, I'm just curious after our conversation, what does one woman kitchen mean to you? Wow, what a big question. Gee, I think one woman kitchen means someone basically who can share her heart through food with others. And there are ways to do it. Like in uh, when I was in the rural parts of India, the caretaker, she just went to the backyard and she brought some of the most delicate herbs. She chopped it and put it on top of chapati for me and uh, a little bit of very runny yogurt, but that's all she had. And that made me feel luxurious and nourished. That was her way. And my way is through Sofre. We all have our way. And, and one woman's kitchen is how with what we have, what it's not what we do is what we have. And if we give everything we have, our job is done. To me, that's a woman's kitchen. Thank you. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you. Nassim, thank you. I'm really teary. Um, my heart is so open to what you just said. And I can't think of a, a more beautiful way to express this idea. And thank you. And thank you to all of you for, for listening. So this is Roseanne Gold. Until next time, thanks for coming to my kitchen. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.